passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 10. That's verses 1 to 27. If you want to use the Bibles there in your seats, that's page 232. And while you're finding that, let me just remind you where we are. Samuel, the prophet and judge of God's people, uh, has encountered Saul, a young man looking for lost donkeys, who in the search for his donkeys was encouraged to come to Samuel the seer that he might inquire. And Samuel has been expecting him and invites him to a, a place of honor at the table. Uh, they enjoy a fellowship meal together. And then uh, the next morning, uh, Samuel reveals to him that he has something from the Lord for Saul to hear. And so as he has prepared him to hear the word of God, we hear what God has to say through Samuel to Saul. Let's attend to God's word together from 1 Samuel 10, 1 through 27. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord appointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Eliohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now these signs, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when he saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkey has been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. 
Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. He wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Hosanna in the highest. You may be seated. A long passage. Thank you for your perseverance as we heard it read and stood before the Lord. God's people wanted a king like the nations. Samuel didn't think that was a good idea. God knew it wasn't a good idea. But he relented and gave them what they asked for. He told Samuel that Saul would be that king, even though in asking for such a king, they were rejecting God as king. Now, so this morning we read of the selection of Saul as king, the proclamation of Saul as king. And in so doing, we will consider what that means for God's people, and as God's people today, what we can learn and understand from God's word. Let me ask that the Lord would bless us with help and understanding as we consider his word. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us, for not remaining hidden or silent, that when we cannot make our way to you, you showed yourself to us. Please, by your spirit, continue to show yourself to us in your word this morning. Help me to speak that which you have for your people. With all that falls short, quickly be forgotten. Build us up, convict us, equip us, we pray, all for the sake of your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. As many of you know, I was not here last Sunday, and again, I want to thank our elder, Steve Whitcomb, for being prepared to stand in and for preaching God's word to you. Steve is uh, worshiping uh, at Hooks at Christian Fellowship and helping them celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, and the reason I was away well, last Sunday morning was because of flight delays and cancellations, uh, but the reason that I was delayed was because we were uh, with family for the funeral of Rebecca's mom. And as it is when you get together with family, one of the ways that you relate is to tell stories, to remember people and remember what has happened in their lives. And one story that I heard before came up again, and I'm not going to reveal whose story it was, um, but... Uh, there was a story, not of Rebecca's uh, mother, but of a family story of, of one individual who when he was in his late elementary years getting ready for a middle school, began to be fed up with the rules around his house. 
He didn't like not being in charge. He didn't like being told what to do. And he said, I'm going to run away. I'm old enough. I'm big enough. I'm going to run away. And he told this to his mom. And her reaction was, fine. Go ahead. But on one condition, you only take with you what is yours. Anything that your dad and I have given to you stays here. And so a few hours after this, he departed from the house with nothing but the birthday suit he was born in and decided that all he could do was hide behind a couple cars in the neighborhood and quickly rethought his plan of being in charge in his life, realizing that what he had that was his, the power, knowledge, and provision that he had, had come from his parents, and he was not ready to be in charge and to take care of himself. Quickly coming back home. Israel's choice to have a king doesn't change the fact that God continues to reign. Any more than that young man's choice to go live on his own, to be in charge of his life, didn't change the reality that what he had was from his parents and his ability to run his life was dependent on their rule and provision for him. This morning we have the opportunity to consider what it means that God continues to rule when other people are placed in position of authority or power, when we find ourselves in positions of power and authority and responsibility over others. Israel's choice to have a king doesn't change the fact that God continues to reign. Saul's hesitancy, the fact that Saul wasn't prepared to be king, didn't know he was going to be king before Samuel spoke to him, who, knowing God's choice for him to be king, when the day comes for him to be announced, where is he? He's hiding among the baggage, not because he's shy, but this is a man who's going to be responsible for the political and military protection of a kingdom against powerful enemies. When we're young, we often might say, wouldn't it be great to be president one day? And then we grow older and we finally say, I don't want that job. You couldn't pay me to have that responsibility and stress. But Saul's ignorance, Saul's hesitancy, does not change the rule of the Lord. This morning in this passage, while it is Saul being proclaimed as king, he is anointed by Samuel. He is proclaimed publicly before the people. While that is the main historical event happening, what is happening in, around, and behind that is that God's sovereignty is being displayed. The fact that God reigns is on display through his choice, through his power, through his ongoing authority. It's God who elects. It's God who empowers. It's God who has the last word. God, in this passage, as he does in so many places throughout Scripture, not just conceptually, but in real world in history, shows us his reign. Now, something we need to wrestle with with this passage is this is happening in the particular circumstance of Israel as what some people call a church-state nexus. That is, they're God's people meant to worship him. They are a nation-state, and that is wed together. We don't live in that particular reality today. The, the church uh, spans all forms of nations, is around the world with no particular civil governance. 
But that doesn't keep us from understanding the passage display about what happens when God rules. It continues to show us how we are to consider when we seek rule, or that our ignorance doesn't change God's rule. And, and we can consider that though we don't live in Israel in that particular circumstances, that God reigns in, in various realms. We can see how God rules over all creation, how God rules over his church, how God rules over our individual lives. And so in this passage, we get to see God's rule behind the scenes as he anoints and selects and appoints Saul, preparing him to reign. And then as the rest of Israel is made aware of this at the assembly in Mitzvah. So let's attend now to God's reign in his choice and his power and in his having the last word. As the passage opens up in verse 1, Samuel takes a flask of oil, he pours it on Saul's head, kissing him, saying, Have you not been appointed as the prince over the people of Israel? Anointing is a sign. It is an indication that something is happening. It is an indication that God is displaying his choice of Saul as king. Now, there are some symbols that come across in this use of anointing. Prior to this point, anointing was done primarily for those who were set apart as priests, who had a particular work to do before the Lord. They were set apart, and they were often anointed with oil for that purpose. So Saul is being set apart. Outside of Israel, in other contexts like Egypt, vassal kings, those are kings under kings, princes, who ruled one area, but under the authority of another, they often were anointed to indicate that they were a king under another king. And in this passage, we note that there is language describing him as a king, that Saul will be a king, but also as a prince. There is a continual indication that though Saul is called to rule over God's people as king, that he does so according to the appointment, according to the authority, the choice of God as the true king. Now, the anointing of Saul by Samuel indicates that it's God's choice. But when all the people to come together at Mitzvah, there is no announcement that God has already chosen Saul. When Saul runs into his uncle as he returns after being with Samuel, he doesn't speak of this choice. We don't know whether it's hesitancy, because he's not sure it's true, because he doesn't want it to be true, whether because he was specifically instructed not to speak of it. But we know that those who are gathered at Mitzvah, all the leaders of Israel, don't know that a choice has already been made. But with the use of lots, and lots, they're, they're not dice per se, but they have the same effect of dice. They, they would use these sticks or stones, and they would, they would roll them or throw them, and they would indicate choices according to that. God superintends and displays his choice through the throwing of the lots. They show that God's choice for king is Saul. Now let's consider the fact that Saul is the one that God has chosen. We're told that at the beginning of the passage that he is appointed, according to verse 1, to save the people from the hands of their surrounding enemies. God has chosen Saul to deliver his people from their enemies. But when he is found among the baggage, because he is hiding from this responsibility, 
He is presented to the people for the first time. And what is said about him? What do they take note of how tall he is, that he's head and shoulders above the people? The interesting thing is that every time in Scripture someone's height as being tall is mentioned, it is not a good thing. You have the the Nephilim, the giants in the opening passages of Genesis. You have those who are in Canaan that appear as giants to the spies when Moses sends them into the promised land. The Nephilim, the Anakim, Goliath. They're always presented as those who have trouble and will create trouble. And so with this fact being presented to the people, we are reminded that Saul is chosen in part as an act of discipline. That the people wanted a king like the rest of the nations, and Saul will be in many ways like the rest of the nations, ushering in difficulty for God's people. Just because someone is in leadership, whether it's in government, whether it's in community, in the church, and they are there as God rules and has allowed in his providence for them to be in charge, that choice doesn't necessarily mean that they are there because they are a good person or above reproach. Sometimes God's choice is for discipline or for a trial. God spoke of Nebuchadnezzar as his chosen one who was to rule so that God would discipline Judah, but then he would discipline Nebuchadnezzar as well. The point of considering God's sovereign choice is not so that we will equate every authority figure with the power of God and say, that person is in charge, we have to treat them as if they're God. But to remember that no one in power, whether they're in power for good or for ill, is there on the basis of their own power. They're not there on the basis of their own strength or their character, but according to the ruling choice of God. Saul is supposed to serve as a king. The people are still supposed to submit to him as king. But the choice of him as king demonstrates that God is still in charge and that this is done according to his will. Anytime we, like Saul, find ourselves in a position of rule or authority, we must remember that it's ultimately God's will. And just as he appoints, he is able to bring down. We serve at the pleasure of the king. And so we are called to remember that it's not ultimately us, but God's choice to which we owe any authority, any power, any position of influence that we have. That the family that we're born into, the education that we have, the opportunities we're presented, whether we're selected by a nomination or an election, whatever the circumstances, it all comes according to God's choice and his rule. And when we are given that authority or power or rule, this allows us also to step aside, to repent, to acknowledge where we have fallen short, to even step down, because God has not staked his plan on us. Our future is staked on God's plan, on his provision, on his will. As parents, it means that we can show that God has placed us in our position of authority not because we have all the answers, because often we best show the display of authority and power of God in our repentance, in our humility by asking forgiveness of our children. We show that God is in control. God shows 
that as Saul is selected, that he is ultimately the one in authority because it is his choice of Saul as king. But we also see God's rule in the display of his power. Saul was unprepared for this. He was caught off guard, basically saying, how can this be true? Is is Samuel pulling my leg? Samuel gives him a number of confirmational signs. He says, you're going to run into someone and find out that the donkeys are home. Then you're going to run into those who are going to a place of worship, and they're going to give you a part of what they were meant to enjoy at the worship service. And then you're going to run into a bunch of prophets, and you yourself are going to prophesy. All of these signs are given as confirmation to Saul, who is probably skeptical, afraid, and unsure. Remember, he didn't know about Samuel. Despite the fact that Samuel was a great prophet and a judge among God's people, remember Saul hadn't heard of him, that his servant had to tell him. And so he doesn't seem likely to be a person that's just going to take Samuel's word for it. And so God gives him these signs. And in so doing, God shows that not only does he have the authority to choose Saul to be the king, but he has the power to make his choice real. His power superintends the lots by which Saul was selected. It's not that just God predicts, oh, the lots are going to make you king, so I'm going to choose you as king. But he's showing that he's already chosen him as king. He's confirmed to Saul that he's going to be king. And then he superintends, he rules over the lots that will display him as the choice to be king. God shows his power in the midst of his choice of Saul as king. Now, the last sign that Saul is given might be a bit interesting to us. We're told that the Spirit will come upon him and make him a new person. Now, that language in Hebrew has this picture of overturning one's heart or overruling. And we probably shouldn't read it as a parallel to what in the New Testament we would describe as the New Testament or the regenerative work of the Spirit, where we understand that We have hearts of stone that are made hearts of flesh so that we can believe. It doesn't seem to indicate what's what's happening here in the passage. Uh, But certainly we see the power of God to transform that's talked about later in Scripture as having a basis in history. So rather what we seem to have here is a reference to how God appoints some to rule his people. You don't need to turn back right now, but maybe later you can turn back to Romans Uh, excuse me, not Romans, to Numbers chapter 11. And Moses is basically ruling God's people by himself. And he's instructed to find elders to help him rule, to help him judge, to help him lead the people. And this is what God says in Numbers 11 verse 17. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. These men are going to be appointed to rule the people, and God is giving them a portion of his spirit so that we would be empowered to bear that burden. And then a few verses later in verse 25, when the elders are gathered, it says this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud, spoke to him, took some of the spirit that was on him, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. What we have here is a sign of God empowering Saul for the particular call that God has on his life. God is able to make Saul suitable for the purpose he has called him to. 
Remember, he doesn't seek to change him into the perfect king. He is going to mislead his people. That's not what he's doing. But he's setting up Saul to be the one that he intends him to be, the one that will be empowered to serve as the one to protect his people from their enemies. He sets him apart, and he empowers him for the position he's called him to. Not of a prophet. He doesn't continue to prophesy. He doesn't continue to have dreams. But the Spirit's power at work is demonstrated in that momentary prophetic work. We see some of the echoes in Pentecost as those who received the Spirit when God poured out His Spirit upon the people prophesied and spoke in tongues. And that didn't necessarily continue for all of them. But as God was empowering His church to proclaim the gospel to the nations, the Spirit was poured out and manifested in a way that says, these are those that I have appointed for that purpose. When God chooses to make His rule known by placing people or placing ourselves in positions of power or influence, He is able and will give them what is necessary for that purpose. God's Spirit gives us gifts of discernment, of prayer, of of preaching, of teaching, and the various gifts He gives to the church so that we can be who God intends us to be, the body, the church of Christ. In Mark 13, 11, Jesus says this to His disciples, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. God says he will provide what is necessary in that time. We are called to be careful that we don't assume that we are called to do what we have not been gifted to do. This is also something we need to consider. We often want positions of power or influence, or we might feel called to do a certain thing, But we do need to ask, is that something God has put upon our heart? Is that something God is equipping us and empowering us to do? Or or is that something that we have chosen for ourselves? Because God will gift those that he has called to the purpose he's called them. I'm not saying that there won't be hard work, that God is opposed to training and building up and educating. But if God has chosen, he will empower. God's rule is both an encouragement that if he's calling us to something, that he will give us what we need, as well as a check on our presumption. God shows that while he is picking Saul to be king, he continues to reign. It's his choice. It's his power. And God also demonstrates his rule in this passage in his ongoing authority. God has the last word. As we pay attention to this passage, who calls the people together? Who informs Saul that he's going to be king? Who dismisses everyone back to their home after Saul has been announced king? It's Samuel. Samuel the prophet, Samuel the giver of God's word. For all of this passage is meant to say that though Saul is now king, that doesn't remove from them from the rule of God, that God will have the last word in all circumstances. In verse 25, we read that Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. That is, God, speaking through the prophet, says this is what the king is to do. God is defining the parameters of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. 
the, the placing of this kingship document before God is saying, God, you are going to be the judge of whether the king actually upholds his end of the bargain. Just as we have a Supreme Court that when our legislators or the executive branch or, or the states are arguing about the law, the laws are presented to the judge to say, who's fulfilling the law? God is the ultimate one that discerns, is the king upholding his end of the bargain or not? Then Samuel, Samuel, not the king, not Saul, then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. God has the last word. But we're left with the impression that God's word through Samuel will define who matters, who is right. We note the fact that God has demonstrated his, his choice, he's, he's displayed his power, he's shown his ongoing authority through Samuel's declarations, but we have some individuals here. Verse 27, But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? The interesting thing about that description, these worthless fellows, it's sons of Belial. Sons of chaos or destruction or wickedness, worthless fellows. It's the same language that described the sons of Eli. It's the masculine of what Hannah in the opening chapters said, don't think of me as a daughter of Belial. Because she was afraid that that Eli thought her drunk. We have these men who have seen the selection of Saul. And they have heard Samuel, the great prophet and judge of God's people, proclaim him as king. And yet they continue to say, I don't know that he can be king. There is an indication. What happens to the sons of Belial? What happens to the sons of Eli? They face the judgment of God when they fail to repent. What's likely to happen to these men who fail to uphold the king that God has happened? There is foreshadowing of destruction and difficulty for them when they reject the word of God as the final authority. matters about our fulfillment of our callings or when we are placed in a position of authority. What matters in those circumstances? Is it the opinion of others? Is it how much wealth or power or popularity we have accumulated? Is it the size of our ministry? Is it the obedience of our children? Or is it whether or not we are doing whatever it is, however big, powerful, and prominent, however small and obscure and seemingly powerless, Are we doing it according to the will and word of God? That should be the judge of whatever position, whatever calling, whatever authority we have. Whatever we do remains under the rule and word of God. And that means for all of us who have been on the other side, not in the position of power or authority, but underneath power and authority, for all of us who have struggled under bad bosses, who have had imperfect parents or lived under oppressive governments or been affected by unjust judges, this is a word of hope because God will have the last word. Not how much power, not how much wealth, not how much influence those men and women have. For the abusers, for the oppressors, for the violent men and women of this world, the last word is not their power, is not their influence, but it's God's judgment. 
we are called to consider is how will we respond to God's display of sovereign rule? Will we see God at work and be like the sons of Belial, these worthless men, and reject what God has revealed? Will we hail the king with excitement and recognition as the people of God did? Will we have reticence and doubt like Saul? Or will the Spirit work to make us valiant guardians to go with what God is doing in our lives? As we consider God's choice of Saul and the fact that God continues to reign even though Saul is an insufficient king who will not be all that it was meant to be for a king of Israel, we are redirected toward what God wants out of a king, of a king that shows the power and glory of God. That, that when Jesus came into this world to show us the rule and power of God, he does so beginning his ministry with his baptism. Whereas he submits to the anointing with water and to the descent of the Spirit, God says, this is my beloved, this is my chosen one with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, who goes about doing prayerful signs of healing, declaring the word of God with authority, even raising people from the dead, and in the midst of that work, showing that he was doing these signs of power to show the rule of God, the kingdom of God. And throughout his whole life, saying, not my will be done, but yours. In the coming of Jesus the King, the son of David, heralded with words of Hosanna, with the waving of palm branches, Jesus shows us the type of king that we are meant to have, a king that shows the rule and reign of God. The reign of God is used to save tyrants and rebels, to make enemies and children, uh, to make enemies into children, to forgive, to make the dead alive. What would happen if we said to God, what that young man said to his parents. We can no more escape the reality of the rule of God than that young man could of his parents. In fact, if we did so, we wouldn't even have our birthday suits that we could count as our own because that comes from God too. But the rule of God that is demonstrated to us in Christ, brothers and sisters, is demonstrated to be the rule of a good king of a righteous king, of a just king, of a merciful and forgiving king. And in Christ, we see the hope, not that you rule, not that I rule, not that the right president rules, but that God rules. So let us praise God who reigns and rules. Let us say, long live the king who sits enthroned in heaven forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you rule. That whatever powers and authorities, whatever kings and presidents, whatever governors exist, even according to your choice and sovereignty, do not remove your rule. How you can display your rule even in our lives. How when you call us to serve on behalf of your authority that you empower and enable. And Lord, when we fall short, when those we trust and fall short, when there is oppression and judgment, Lord, that you will have the last word because you are the final king. And we thank you that in Christ we know that the judgment upon us can be, well done, good job, my faithful servant, because our righteousness is in Christ. 
Hear our prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.